Good afternoon. Um, scripture this afternoon is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sandy, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. A special welcome to you uh, who are just joining us for the first time. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn. Um, we are incredibly glad that you have decided to join us this afternoon for worship. It is an incredible privilege for us to be able to gather together this way. More than all of that, it's really my privilege to be able to open God's word with and for you all. My wife, Sheila and I, Sheila's in the front row, uh, were married for seven years before our son, Seth, was born. Uh, we, and the reason behind that was we weren't really sure that we wanted kids when we, when we had first kind of gotten married. I know a lot of people get married knowing that that's the case. That wasn't, that wasn't necessarily the case for us because honestly, it seemed like a lot of work. That, I mean, speaking for myself. But after seven years, God had kind of changed our hearts on that and it became something that we were actually pretty excited about. And when the day came where we found out that Sheila was pregnant, man, we were thrilled. We were thrilled, over the moon about it. And in those first few days of being a parent after Seth was born, I do remember thinking, man, if someone was not ready for this and didn't want to be a parent, I could really see how this would totally mess with somebody's life. <laughs> because as it turns out, taking care of a child is a lot of work. Oftentimes, it is thankless work. Seth, he's 14 now, but when he was a baby, he never once thanked us for coming in to him while he was crying in the middle of the night. He never thanked us for changing his diaper. He never thanked us for providing food or clothes to him. And like most parents, we continued to do so because it was love that motivated us. Seth hadn't done anything to earn our love. We weren't being paid back for any of the things that we did on his behalf. We, like most parents, were willing to sacrifice our, our sleep and our comforts and our personal desires for 
him. Why? Because he was our child and we loved him and we knew that he needed us. You can tell a lot about a person by the way that they respond to the needs of a child, and they are many, whether that child be theirs or whether it be someone else's. So in today's passage, we find Jesus sitting with a child in his arms. Jesus often used children as illustrations of what was good and what was godly, but in this case, he was using a child in part to teach the disciples what it means to be great. And God made all things great when he made everything from nothing. And mankind's pursuit of greatness is certainly a worthwhile thing because God is seen and God is glorified in the greatness of all that he has made. But what makes us great and how we get there is what we as mankind have gotten all screwed up. We've gotten it all screwed up. And we need Jesus to renew our minds and to challenge our notions in that area so that we, like the disciples, can better understand. So beginning in verse 30 of today's passage, we read, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus and his disciples were leaving the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is where he's been, passing through Galilee and heading toward Capernaum and Judea with one destination and one thing on his mind. Jerusalem and the cross upon which he would be crucified. So when we first began our study in the book of Mark, we mentioned that Mark's letter in particular is divided into two parts. In the first eight chapters or so, Mark wants to make clear to his readers who Jesus is. And he does that by describing what Jesus did more than what Jesus said, which is attacked other gospel writers had taken. And then the second half of Mark is all about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And at the end of Mark 8, we see Jesus begin to set his eyes on Jerusalem where he knew he would die and rise again. So in Mark 8, verses 27 through 30, Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And in that confession, Jesus' identity is made clear. Now we know from Matthew's gospel that Peter did not figure this out, but that God revealed it to him. In Matthew 16, verse 17, in response to this confession of Peter's, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon was Peter's first name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this revelation to Peter and the disciples, we enter into the second half of the book of Mark. 
Look at Mark 8.31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then verse 32 of that same passage finishes with, and he said this plainly. It is in verse 31 of Mark 8 that Jesus first makes known to his disciples why he came that he was born to die and he was born to rise again for our salvation. In today's passage, Jesus once again tells his disciples where he was headed and why he came. Verse 31 says, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So no matter how often it was communicated, and no matter how plainly Jesus spoke, the 12 disciples could not, maybe would not, process the idea that Jesus was going to die. And the news both hurt them and confused them. You see, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they believed that he was the son of God, that he was Emmanuel, God with us. But a crucified Messiah made no sense to them. No sense. Because like most Jews, they were looking for a conquering Messiah, not a suffering one. They believed Roman occupation was their greatest threat, not sin and death. But neither of those ideas were God's ideas. Neither of those ideas had been foretold so that we could identify God's long-awaited chosen one. The Messiah would indeed rule and reign, but he would not do so through the power of his army. He would do so through the power of his shed blood. It would not be earthly kingdoms that Jesus would topple, but the kingdom of darkness, ruled by Satan and his demons, triumphing over sin and death to offer new life to all who would believe in him. That is how God would establish his rule and reign, and that is what would establish Jesus as the great king, the king of kings. But the disciples weren't ready for that. Continuing in verse 33, we read, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The disciples had just heard Jesus say that he was going to be handed over and killed. But they didn't ask Jesus about that. Instead, they began to argue about who was the greatest among them. Not, not a great moment. <laughs> I think the worst part of this scenario would have been the question that Jesus asked. What were you discussing on the way? This is like God walking through the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned 
and they decided to hide from God. And what does God ask them? Where are you? As though he didn't know. What were you discussing along the way? As though he didn't know. By God's grace, it is oftentimes in our failures where God teaches us what we do not know. And that is what's happening here with the disciples. Through the father and his demon-possessed son that we looked at last week, the disciples learned a lesson about faith, though they had not understood it. And they are about to learn what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, though it is quite clear that they had not yet understood Friends, the ways of God and his kingdom sometimes don't make sense to us. And that is because sin has truly broken everything. Including what is true versus what is a lie. Which way leads to God versus the way that leads to hell. What gives us life versus what kills us and destroys us. But Jesus came to set things straight. Both in what he said and in what he did, Jesus became the living example of who God is, how his kingdom operates, and what the Christ life looks like with he himself as the way and the truth and the life. Verse 35 And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So as we talked about earlier, one's pursuit of greatness is not the issue. The issue is that like the disciples, you and I falsely believe that greatness is found in making much of ourselves. We believe that greatness is found in making much of ourselves. And that began in us and in all of mankind all the way back in Genesis 3 when the first sin was committed. Practically, Adam and Eve had sinned by disobeying God. I think we're all familiar with that story. But at a heart level, if you look at it, Their sin was much more wicked than that. Look at Genesis 3 as Eve talks to the serpent. Beginning in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Sin was crouching at their door before their teeth ever pierced that fruit. 
The heart of Adam and Eve's sin is the same as every sin that mankind has committed ever since. It is not just that we disobey God. We want to be like God. We want to be like God. And we want to determine good and evil for ourselves and find wisdom on our own. God is not necessary. Look at verse 5 again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent lied. Of course, the serpent lied. But the prospect of being like God, knowing good and evil for herself and having her own wisdom, that was what made Eve sin. That was what made Eve sin. It wasn't about the fruit. It was about what that fruit was going to do for her. And Satan still appeals to you and to me with that same lie. Because he knows that we want to be first. We think that this whole thing is all about us and whatever it is that makes us happy. That's the point of life, right? We think we're wise enough to decide for ourselves what's wise and what's right and what's wrong. But none of us live up to our own standards of wisdom or morality. We can't even follow our own rules. Still, compared to most people, we think we're pretty great. Right? We think we're pretty great. And we're just like the disciples that way. Always evaluating who we're better than. Who's the person that might be standing in our way so that we can be even greater? If you don't believe me, let me have someone climb into your car while somebody else is sitting at a green light or cutting you off in traffic. Let me have somebody come and sit at your dinner table after a day of school or a day of work and have you discuss how brilliant your coworkers and your students and your bosses, I bet we'll hear some pretty honest evaluations, and I also bet that you're going to come out looking pretty good. Even if you have a bad self-image, or you don't like yourself that much, or you have low self-esteem, it's probably because you don't think you're as great as you should be, at least according to the world's definition of greatness. So friends, if we are honest, and let's be, it isn't even true greatness that you and I are after. What we're after is the appearance of greatness and the praise of man that so often comes with it. But, such a great word, what if greatness is not bound up in any of that? Good news, friends, it isn't. It isn't. And what if greatness is determined by God and what he says makes one great is all that matters? 
But good news, friends, it is. Let's look again at verses 35 and 37 of chapter 9. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Everything in us wants to be first. We want to be in the first row. We want to be the first in line, and we want to be the first one picked. Remember how bad that would suck when you were in gym class and you were the last one picked? But Jesus is saying that it's better to be last, that it is better to serve than to be served. And that by being last in the world's eyes, you become first in the eyes of God. By becoming the least, God makes you the greatest. So why is Jesus talking about being last, being a servant of all, and the manner in which we receive children if he is trying to teach a lesson on greatness? Friends, it is because Jesus knew that he needed to radically transform the disciples' understanding of what greatness was, of what our understanding of greatness is. And he used the object lessons of a servant and a child to do it. Servants and children at this time would have had a bunch of things in common. Here are just a few. Both had no power. They had no accomplishments and no greatness. They were both vulnerable and dependent, and they needed to trust and obey those who were in charge. And Jesus was saying, if you want to be great, be like these, and welcome these. That's what Jesus was getting at. If you want to be great, be like these. Welcome these. The way that you treat the least of these, in this case a child, is the way that you treat me. That's what Jesus was saying. And Jesus wasn't just talking about physical children. but He was talking about his spiritual ones. Those who would come to him by faith who would be born again in his name. Jesus wanted his disciples and he wanted you and I to know that the way to greatness is down, not up. That it comes through being last, not being first. It comes through servanthood, not dominance. And it comes through giving to those unable to pay you back. Meaning you don't stand to get anything in return for what it is that you give. He wanted us to know that it comes through decrease, not increase, through self-sacrifice, not self-preservation, humility, not pride. And the more that you pursue greatness on your own, the further you are from it. This is a radical teaching. 
for all peoples and for all times. So he needed to repeat it often, and he did. He once told a story about a man who was attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, and left for dead. There's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan man all passed by this man. The priest and the Levite, both of whom would have been highly regarded in Jesus' day, passed this man by on the other side of the road. So they didn't just step over him. They didn't want to be anywhere near him. But the Samaritan man, who would have been considered an outcast of outcasts, took pity on the man and cared for him at his own expense. So, it was not the religious elite who ignored the needs of another that Jesus called great. But it was the outcast who showed mercy that God called great. On a different day, Jesus and his disciples were in the temple. And Jesus saw people putting their gifts into the offering box. And there were two groups that he observed. Rich men and a poor widow. Now we don't know what the rich men gave, but we know that the widow gave two small copper coins, which was the equivalent of a day's wage for the average worker. And Jesus said in Luke 21, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So, it was not those who gave the most that Jesus considered the greatest, but it was the one who sacrificed the most that Jesus called great. Friends, Jesus knew what examples the religious elite were setting for his people. He knew that they lived lives of self-exaltation, not lives of sacrifice and mercy. The religious leaders that the Israelites looked up to made a spectacle of everything. Their clothing and their prayers and their fasting and their giving. Everything was so that they could be seen. And with their pride and self-exaltation came competition. A desire to take out those whom you perceive to be a threat. And this was the motivation behind the religious leaders' relentless attempts to discredit Jesus throughout his ministry. And ultimately, it was the reason that they wanted him killed. Listen to John 11, verses 47 through 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place, our place, and our nation. Jumping ahead to verse 53 of that same chapter. So from that day, they made plans to put Jesus to death. That is unbelievable. Do you know where pride leads 
when it is fully formed, it leads to a desire for the eradication of God himself. Because once you bypass everybody else, guess who's remaining? And that, my friends, pride and the eradication of God himself is the heart of Satan and his kingdom. And it was the same heart often found in the religious leaders. And it is still found today in many who are shown kindness and mercy from God. Now, while that is not where the disciples' hearts were, they were, in fact, showing signs of feeling threatened. Look at verses 38 through 41 of today's passage. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see it? The disciples saw someone who was not part of their group doing things that they thought only they could do. In this case, casting out demons. And as a result, they felt threatened and wanted to stop it. Honestly, and it makes sense, the disciples were probably still a little bit sore from not being able to cast out a demon in the region that they had just left. Man, we couldn't cast out this demon and now this dude who doesn't follow us is casting him out? They're probably still a little tender. But there's more to it than that. Friends, they believe themselves to be exclusive. That they had what no one else had or should have. And that, my friends, is pride. So how does Jesus respond? He responds by legitimizing the man and the miracle that he performed in his name. I think this is such a helpful lesson for us. Friends, whenever something is done in Jesus' name while the action is performed by someone else, the power and the right and the authority to accomplish it belongs to Jesus himself. So when you say, in Jesus' name, you are claiming his power and his authority and claiming above all that you have none of your own. For the one who is not against us is for us, Jesus said. Friends, the disciples are like us in so many ways because they remind us that it doesn't take denominations or theological differences or doctrinal disagreements for us to see other brothers and sisters in Christ as less than we are. It doesn't take denominations. It doesn't take theology. It doesn't take doctrine. Those things didn't even exist when the disciples were saying these things, and still they felt threatened. And here's why that matters for you and for me. 
Just because someone doesn't believe exactly the way that you and I do, it does not mean they are our enemy. And it does not mean that they are our competition. If they love Jesus Christ, if they follow Jesus Christ, and if they preach Jesus Christ, God says they're one of us. And if they are in need of some kind of correction, God will deal with them better than you and I will. That is why you will hear us praying for other churches, even the churches that we were once a part of but no longer are. Because Christ died for all his chosen ones, and in so doing, he made us and them one new people. It is no coincidence that today's passage began with Jesus talking about his death and resurrection. It has everything to do with everything that followed. Because it is in Jesus' death where we see what it truly means to be great and what it truly means to be a servant of all. Listen to Philippians 2. This is verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, God's own son, left the glory of his home in heaven to become a servant of all. And though he alone was due glory, he humbled himself. How much did he humble himself? Unto death on a cross, a criminal's cross. And how far back in line did he stand? He stood behind Every single one of us. Behind those who loved him and those who plotted to kill him. Behind those who cried at the foot of the cross 
and those who drove the nails into his hands and feet. He stood behind evangelicals and Lutherans and Catholics. He stood behind Democrats and Republicans, counting all of us more significant than himself. And because he did, God exalted him. Because he did, God exalted him and gave Jesus the name above every other name. And if you and I want to be great, then he must live in us. He must live in us. And that means losing our life for his sake and following him means picking up our cross and becoming a servant of all. And in so doing, with God's help, Jesus promises that you and I will not lose our reward, which is in heaven. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we confess to you today that we have pursued a greatness that is not of you. We confess that we trust in our own sense of right and wrong, our own wisdom, and our own ability to rule and reign over circumstances. In doing so, we lie to ourselves because we have none of those things apart from you. In our pursuit of wisdom of what is right and how to live life on earth, we show ourselves to be your creation and the fact that you have placed those good desires within us. But sin has marred our understanding and has caused us to look everywhere but you for what you alone can give. Help us. Our only hope in life and death is your son, Jesus Christ. Let us look to his life, his death, and his resurrection in all things. He alone is the way and the truth and the life. He alone is wisdom. He alone is great. For we who believe, Father, we thank you for our salvation found in him. Empower us by your spirit to live a life of godliness and greatness that brings you glory because it is for your glory and our enjoyment of you that we were made. And Father, for those who have not yet believed in the sound of my voice, would your spirit do a work in their hearts and in their minds today that man cannot do? We can save no one. We can change no one. We convict and convince no one. We need and we want you to do that holy work in them. Let all within the sound of my voice be convinced of your great love for them today. Certainly in the everyday kindnesses that you show each of us, but more than that, in the giving of your son for their sake. That the one by whom and through whom all things were made became like us so that we could be like him. He took the punishment that was ours so that we could receive the righteousness that is his. It is in these things and so much more that we declare him today the servant of all and is truly great. And in response, God, help us to serve one another and to offer our hearts in worship to him. For Jesus' sake and in his name that we pray, amen.